Tonight on Rhode Island PBS Weekly. Birds flock to Rhode Island in the wintertime. And you don't have to live by the coast to enjoy them. There are some interesting little ponds that, that abut the, uh, the trail system. So that gives a nice environment for migratory birds uh, during the winter months. They'll go and they'll, they'll spend some time there during the winter. It makes for a great opportunity for uh, nature photography. The world tends to, you know, melt away. So it, it's truly um, a great escape. You know, you're so focused on the bird, um, you're no longer focused on yourself um, or the trials and tribulations, you, you know, that can um, inundate us, you know, from day to day. Sometimes you just can't put it in words. I was, I was just say, hey, it's just, it's what I love to do. It feels like your body goes on fire when you go in the water. Woo! Welcome to Rhode Island PBS Weekly. I'm Michelle San Miguel. And I'm Pamela Watts. Here in New England, short, gloomy days and long, dark nights tend to keep many people indoors for much of the winter. But as we recently found, there's plenty to see outside if you're willing to bundle up and look. From seals to snowy owls, Rhode Island attracts migratory birds from as far as the Arctic Circle as the temperature there starts to plummet. Many bird watchers hope to catch a glimpse of these winged visitors as they pass through the ocean state. Soon after the sun rises over this rocky coastline, bird lovers gather. Have any of you been to Black Point before? Some of you, maybe? Okay. Excited for what winter wildlife they might find. You had a catbird? Yeah, it was, it was a big gray. I didn't see it, but good. Oh, there it is. Yeah. Yep. Indeed. Yeah, in, in this shrub back here is a uh, catbird. Every Wednesday morning, the Audubon Society of Rhode Island organizes a bird walk. So I'm going to leave this low for people. On this day, the group is trekking through the Black Point fishing area in Narragansett off of Ocean Road. So in my scope, if you want to look, there are some surf scoters. They're looking for birds that flock to Rhode Island during the winter time. Don, they have that orange beak, right? They have an orange beak and they have that white patch on their chin and on the back of their head. Including the ever popular harlequin ducks. You typically see the harlequins in uh, close to shore where the waves are breaking, they like the, the stirred up water. These enthusiasts know there's a short window of time to get the best view of these colorful ducks. So there's uh, harlequin ducks. Let's see what else we have. But birders don't have to travel to the coast to spot winter wildlife. Photographer Jason Major likes to venture into the woods along the Patuxet River Trail in Cranston. So the Patuxet River Trail has uh, a few owls, resident owls of its own. Um, I've spotted some barred owls here. They're pretty, uh, pretty easy to spot and very photogenic. Some of those walks have resulted in mesmerizing pictures. He's captured it all from these black scoters in Charlestown to mergansers in Connecticut. 
He's also photographed a short-eared owl in flight and on the ground, as well as a group of seals he found resting on rocks in Sakonet Point. That was a kingfisher. The one that just perched up on... The one that made that squawky sound. We set out one January morning to see what we could find. And soon into our hike, Major was clicking away. He spotted a green-winged teal in the river. There was also a male-belted kingfisher perched on a tree and a dark-eyed junco near the banks of the river. He says these are all birds that can be spotted there in the wintertime. Wandering over to the other ones. Nice. Is it easier to spot animals during the winter months? Well, just for the sake that, you know, all the leaves are down. So now you can, uh, you know, you can look pretty far into the woods, uh, up into the trees where, where a lot of birds and, and other animals are, you know, hiding out, uh, especially during the day. So let's see if I can find, there they are. Over in Middletown, there's another flock of birds bobbing around. Satuous Point National Wildlife Refuge is home to the second largest wintering population of harlequin ducks on the Atlantic coast. This is a stopover too, so it's not only a wintering site, a refuge, it's also a stopover. So if they're, they're migrating through, this is a place for them to rest and rejuvenate, refuel, and then head more south. Janice Nipshinsky is the visitor services manager for the Rhode Island National Wildlife Refuges. What a beautiful day. It is. And yeah, it's not bone chilling, it's, it's no. comfortable. She showed us some of the winter birds that migrate to Rhode Island for part of the season. Sometimes there's some up on this edge around the corner. They're still in the water there. Satuous Point sits on 242 acres, complete with marshes, meadows, and beaches. And this is where a lot of birds will come to rest and to feed. Nipshinsky led us down a path on the preserve to spot some wintering waterfowl. Look right in here. You see the two ducks? Oh, I do. How beautiful. <laughs> you wouldn't oh, know I that. see them. <laughs> they bop up and down. Yeah, because now I don't see them. <laughs> oh, now I see them again. <laughs> wow. Always look for them in the white water rafting. It didn't take long to find our share of winter birds. How beautiful. The day Michelle became a birder. Oh, I see four. <laughs> Nipshinsky says they come down from Canada and the Arctic coast to bask in the relatively warmer Rhode Island waters. Many of them spend the whole season. Sea ducks will spend the whole season. So you got the common eider, bufflehead, holoquin, scalp, Morganzers, quite a few. You light up as you're talking about and that, this. They're just, they're just beautiful. It's they're exciting. Just, yeah, it is. So I, that's why people will brave it, um, the winter cold out here. But then I see people just enjoying walking. Just this, you can just tell. They, re, they get fresh air. Their spirit, you know, get refreshed. It's almost like the migratory birds when they stop over. The people are also stopping here to rest and to refuel their spirits just like the birds. Come on, there she is. Major says going outside has been therapeutic for him too. A lot of times during, during those really tough winter months uh, that we've had previously, I just don't feel like doing anything. And getting, getting out and getting my camera and getting my gear and going out into the woods, sometimes is a, is a little bit, I have to push myself to do it. But every time I do, I feel so much better being, you know, spending some time outdoors, even if it's only half an hour. Now what are those over there? 
He's on the search for a snowy owl this season. No luck yet, but he's hopeful. He's photographed them in previous years at Satuous Point. The snowy owls are always uh, your, mo your more exciting animals, uh, your more exciting birds, just, just because of their rarity. Uh, you know, some years they might not show up at all. So when one does, they usually attract a lot of attention. In the winter, we could be fortunate enough to see the snowy owl because they come here to feed. But Nipshinsky says it's important to keep distance from these majestic birds and stay at least 200 feet away. Even though it's kind of looking at you and you think that, oh yeah, look, they, they want attention, they could be having a lot of stress go on and they're hunting. So if you disturb their, when they're hunting, they're not getting enough food to go back to where they come, like the Arctic coast, and they will, they will die on the way. We had four, four snowy owls were dead from um, malnutrition. They didn't have enough food in them. Those might be more females. Interesting. Once Major spots wildlife along the Patuxent, he enjoys coming back to check on them from a distance. I think it's really neat to be able to experience them while they're on their while they're on their uh, their their long journeys. And you'll be out here even when it's in the teens, 20 degrees. That won't deter you from coming out. Well, it doesn't it doesn't stop the birds from coming out, so uh, it's not going to stop me from coming out. The worst thing you can do is try to find a bird in the scope before, yeah. <laughs> before you know where it is. And it's also not stopping these birders from scanning the skies. It looks like a loon to me, but let's see. They know the change in season comes with unique sights and sounds. Who would think this is January? <laughs> Up next, we take another bird's eye view at some Rhode Islanders who don't use guns when stalking game in the woods. Their weapons have keen vision, curved beaks, and sharp talons. Tonight, we meet falconers and their hunters of the sky. Working with these birds and, and hunting with them, you're, you're truly one with nature. You're really interacting with them and it's hands-on. You know, it's not something that you're, you're observing. You're, you're a part of it. Jim Gwazinski of Westerly has been part of the sport of hunting with birds of prey for 27 years. He is a master falconer, currently training this raptor. The aesthetics of it are, are extremely invigorating. I think that, you know, what it, the, the bond that, that you share with these birds is, is pretty magnificent. Um, they're not pets. The sport itself, I mean, where it brings you, are some, some beautiful places, some beautiful habitat. It takes place in open fields and country woodlands during a season that runs from October to February. Falconry, or hawking, is training raptors to hunt game with you. Witnessing their majestic flight, you understand why it was crowned the sport of kings. Its origins date back centuries to the Middle East, eventually migrating to medieval Europe, especially with royalty. It remained popular until the introduction of guns. Today, falconry is a specialized sport, according to Gwazinski, similar to fly fishing. There is a, an art to it, to falconry, and there is a finesse to it in the sense of setting the hunt up and, you know, almost trying to muscle the hunt, if you will, or control it as much as you can. Originally, what was the object of falconry? It was uh, point fact who put food on the table. Uh, especially prior to the invention of firearms. What about today? 
The same. I, you know, I'll, I'll be the first to admit I, I've eaten rabbit. I've eaten squirrel. Um, you, you've yeah. eaten rabbit and squirrel. I have. I actually prefer squirrel. Because? Um, the taste. And yeah, you know, rabbit, you know, they, they tend to they'll have a few fleas and ticks on them here oh. and there. So, um, <laughs> so you can't be squeamish to participate in this sport. You can't. And no, you can't. I mean, it is a hunting it a hunting sport. It all begins by capturing the bird of prey. Gwizinski says he either has to climb to a nest to get a hatchling or catch an immature bird in a special net. You understand that there are going to be people who find this objectionable, mm -hmm. that you're taking hatchlings from the nest or, you know, trapping a, a, a wild bird. Mm -hmm. How do you answer that? I say that, sure, you know, I, I, I can get that, that point of view. I think if they understood the, the amount of time and energy um, and, and enthusiasm but care that we have for these birds, about 75 to 80% do not make it through their first year. So as falconers, we're allowed to trap these immature raptors um, and we leave the actual mature birds alone. So you see yourselves as conservationists? I do. It was truly falconers that had a lot to do with the thrust and the push to get peregrine falcons off the endangered species list. According to Gwizinski, peregrine falcons are now nesting under several bridges in Rhode Island and atop the Superman building in downtown Providence, where they can be watched with their brood on a webcam. This creature is the first peregrine falcon the state has allowed to be captured. She's considered the most prized of hunting birds. Other raptors are also used for hunting, such as this kestrel, the smallest of falcons. Also merlins, goshawks, cooper's hawks, and especially red-tailed hawks. Stephen Wood is training a red-tailed hawk. He had to apprentice for two years, then pass a field test. After five years as a general, he can apply to be a master falconer. There are federal requirements, and Rhode Island Environmental Management regulates hawking, overseeing licensing. Gwizinski says the sport is a commitment year-round. It goes beyond um, a hobby. It's a passion. Um, it, it really is a lifestyle. It's, there's a lot that goes into it. You know, these birds are, are cared for um, every day. It's not a passing fancy, and it's certainly something that you just can't, you know, put on a shelf and, and forget about. Gwizinski says training begins with food-based reward and getting the predator to eat from your hand. And as you're doing this, you're, you're trying to establish a, a trust with the bird. And then what you do is you'll, you'll put the bird on, on a perch, say a few feet away, and you start to incorporate the whistle. And you whistle and get the bird to jump, you know, take a, a little bit of a, a flight at you. They land on the glove, you give them the tidbit, you put them back, and then you, you walk further away. And essentially you're getting the bird to fly to you farther and farther away. The whistle calls the bird back to the hunter. In training, they do this on a leash called a creance. Then a leather lure is introduced. This is another means of enticing the bird's return while hunting in the field. When the raptors are released to nearby trees, falconers go into the woods, literally beating the bushes with sticks to get their quarry to move. And if an animal is spotted, say a rabbit, the hunter gives a distinct call to alert the bird to their prey. Their visual acuity is, is phenomenal. What they're starting to do is they're, they make the connection between, you know, something going, something running, and, and the falconer. If uh, Quarry actually does 
um, you know, come out of a, a briar patch or, or squirrel out of a, you know, a dray or, you know, it's, it's running a tree line, the bird will actually key in on that game call, if you will. We are more or less the, um, the beagle. You know, we're the ones that are pushing this, this the, you know, the quarry for these birds. Gwizinski says most of the kill taken in the hunt is preserved as future feed for the falcons. After all this training, most of these birds of prey will be released back to the wild after just a few seasons. Hunters say they are borrowed. For Gwizinski and a handful of other falconers in Rhode Island, a day spent with their sky hunters defies description. The world tends to, you know, melt away. So it, it's truly um, a great escape. You know, you're so focused on the bird, um, you're no longer focused on yourself um, or the trials and tribulations, you know, that can um, inundate us, you know, from day to day. Sometimes you just can't put it in words. I was just like, hey, it's just, it's what I love to do. Now we turn to a story that just might give you the shivers. A small but very hardy group of Rhode Islanders is embracing the cold temperatures. As senior producer Justin Kenny found last February, they are immersing themselves in frigid ocean waters for sport, health, and community. I'm Mike Garr and I'm a winter swimmer. I'm from Kingston, Rhode Island. It feels like your body goes on fire when you go in the water because your skin responds to the cold water in a big way. Uh, in the middle of uh, the winter, we've been swimming for about six to eight minutes. I think it takes about a month to get kind of used to doing it on a regular basis. I had heard from a couple of friends of mine that it was really, really beneficial and that it really stimulated your, your nervous system and I decided to give it a try three years ago. I can't speak very well, but I feel good. <laughs> We just know that we're going to feel like a million dollars like two or three hours after we do it. So we look forward to it every time. We have a great deal of anticipation for each time we do one of these plunges. Hi, I'm Rachel Balaban. I'm from Middletown, Rhode Island, and I am a cold water swimmer. I think I was looking for something new and different, uh, something to break the tedium of COVID and I knew there were health benefits and it seemed like a really great idea. I, I just feel energized and I feel um, I haven't gotten sick. You know, I really have had fewer colds for sure. Um, I'm also, my threshold for cold has certainly uh, risen. My approach is to go very slowly and mindfully and to breathe deeply. 
and a very um, mindful approach to the water allows me to really adjust and not feel overly um, anxious. And the, the deeper I go into my breath and I, uh, the more accustomed to the water I feel, the more peaceful I feel. So about after two minutes, I'm feeling pretty great. Then the question really becomes making sure you get out before uh, you've stayed in too long. My name is Jen O'Hearn. I'm from South Kingston, Rhode Island. Grew up in Narragansett. Uh, and I am the founder of the Rhode Island Cold Dip Crew. The Rhode Island Cold Dip Crew is, I'd like to say it's a group of us, but sometimes it's just myself. Uh, and I tend to go into the water mostly at sunrise, um, starting in November and through, really through the whole winter. So the difference between dipping and swimming is that we tend not to go all the way over our heads. There are some people that like to go and just kind of do a quick dip under fully. Um, for me personally, I just go up to my shoulders. This is just gradually walking in, using your breath to control your fear and getting your body under control in the extreme cold temperatures. Benefits that I have found and that there is some science behind it is it's great for your cardiovascular system, it's great for your lymphatic system, it helps with natural immunity, it helps with your mood, um, it gets, lets you have better sleep, you can lose some weight, and it allows you to be brave. The coldest day I've had was minus five as I left town. When I got to the beach, it was about four degrees and I, the steam was coming off the water and it's just so beautiful. I would say today is a day just like that. It's six degrees, but the sun is rising, the, the, the water is lapping beautifully as it, it crashes the sand, and it's just a beautiful morning to go in. How's it feel? Good. So good. My name is Christina Lawrenson. I'm from Coventry, Rhode Island, and I am a winter swimmer. We're a group of um, a couple different swimmers that swim around Rhode Island. Um, we're the ones that stick it out through the winter. Um, so a lot of us swim off of uh, Jamestown Island. Um, and right now we're trying to tour other beaches. I worry about hypothermia. I, you know, I have certain rules to try to keep me safe. Um, I promised my husband that I wouldn't swim above my uh, above my head. So, um, you know, if I ever feel like I'm getting in trouble, I can stand up and you know get out of the water more easily. And I also just try to not stay in too long. And what type of person does this? Uh, <laughs> a tough person, I think. Um, you know, it's it's always it does definitely take some mental toughness to do it. Some people definitely think I'm crazy.
Finally tonight, a look ahead to next week. Frederick Douglass was a fugitive, aided by friends in Rhode Island in a daring and dangerous escape. He went from being on the run to becoming one of the most influential Americans of the 19th century. Frederick Augustus Washington Bailey later changed his name to Frederick Douglass to elude capture. He escaped bondage, arriving in Newport in 1838. Historian Lee Blake explains why he couldn't stay there. Because Newport, Rhode Island, is a slave state. And one thing that people really forget is how involved Rhode Island was in the slave trade. Many of the slave ships that came to the United States came into Rhode Island. But Douglas and his new wife, Anna Murray Douglas, do find safe harbor, however briefly, in Newport with the free black family of Isaac Rice. The Rice homestead still stands on the corner of Thomas and William Streets and was a station on the Underground Railroad. The Douglases were then whisked by stagecoach here to New Bedford. From that corner down about four blocks is all Abolition Row. Blake, who is president of the New Bedford Historical Society, says it is to this Whaling City neighborhood, now the historic district Abolition Row, that Douglas is sent. He has his first taste of life as a free man in the home of Nathan and Polly Johnson. What role did this very house that we're sitting in have in shaping Frederick Douglass's life? Nathan and Polly Johnson, who were African-American entrepreneurs, were part of the Underground Railroad. So this is an Underground Railroad site, and when Anna and Frederick come here, they've just been married just three or four days, but Frederick is 20 years old. So we're so used to seeing Frederick Douglass as an elder statesman, we forget that he had a foundation story. And this house is part of the foundation story. That's our broadcast this evening. Thank you for joining us. I'm Michelle San Miguel. And I'm Pamela Watts. We'll be back next week with another edition of Rhode Island PBS Weekly. Until then, please follow us on Twitter and Facebook and visit us online to see all of our stories and past episodes at ripbs.org weekly or listen to our podcast on your favorite audio streaming platform. Thank you and good night.